This is the Author Archive podcast. This episode is all about a new book written by Michael G. Wellam called Combat Divers, an illustrated history of special forces divers. Mike, welcome. How do you know about this stuff? Uh, well, it goes back a long way, uh, many, many, many years. Uh, it's what I did uh, for a period of time in my life. Uh, and then added to that, I was in the commercial diving industry. And so that still meant mixing with divers and occasionally meeting up with these guys that uh, go and do secret stuff. And is it still relevant now? There are a lot of things in your book about what was happening in 1944, 1945. But then there is a whole chapter about Ukraine and Russia. So does that mean the life of combat divers is very relevant in in, in this year? Yes, it, it it's, uh, it's making a bit of a comeback, actually. Uh, during the period of time when there was conflicts going on in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, that was sort of desert mountain warfare. And so it was a little bit uh, outside of the water sphere. And the people that were trained, essentially, uh, divers have uh, other jobs as well. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're soldiers or sailors uh, and they have other skills. Uh, diving is a means to an end. And so during that period of time of those conflicts, uh, divers found themselves not in water, but in the deserts and mountains of those countries uh, fighting the war. And so I suppose to a degree, uh, uh, the special forces and the, the diving family uh, retracted a little bit. You know, people weren't so concerned about them. suppose the only uh, ones that really kept uh, going were those in mine warfare because uh, everywhere where there's water, there's mines. And so those people were used uh, quite a lot. Outside of that, it, 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 it backed off. Now we've gone away from uh, the desert mountain regions and what's going on in the world with, uh, we anticipate, uh, or allegedly, uh, with Russia and its uh, underwater activities. Uh, and of course, Ukraine. It's changing, and people are now looking more at the uh, the, the diving uh, covert operations in more detail. Other countries are, are upping their standards and and you know getting in new equipment, uh, and the Americans are pushing forward now with the new designs of mini subs, which we talk about in the book. Yeah. So when we all saw on the news that there had been a, a major disruption of uh, a natural gas pipeline and lots of hydrocarbons were just bleeding into the air, did you look at that and think, ah, I know what's going on here? I did, but I don't have the evidence. And of course, everybody wants evidence. Uh, so without hard evidence and, and nobody's actually releasing any real information i think the uh the people scandinavia that have actually examined it and looked at it say that it was sabotage you know there were holes blown in the pipeline but of course <clears throat> nobody's pointing the finger and saying who exactly did it because there's no evidence i did uh pick up some information that uh 
Russian boats had been in the area at the time, but whether they actually deployed and did anything, we don't know. Because the trouble, the, 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 one of the things is with covert diving, uh, a lot of it is done using submarines now and advanced diving equipment. Uh, so you would never know they were there unless somebody had picked up submarines movements. So I, I, uh, I have my views, <laughs> but they might not be everybody's. Yes. Um, I mean, it makes me feel distinctly uncomfortable that <laughs> maybe it does you too, but that's a sort of human response, isn't it? That when people are just flagrantly breaking this stuff. Yeah. Uh, the, they can. I mean, in the book, I talk about the uh, the cables in Norway, you know, the, carrying the uh, um, uh, electronics, the internet, uh, being cut or not. They, they, they were cut and dragged away. You know, there's lengths of cable missing. You know, OK, a trawler can do damage. But, uh, you know, this is when you look into it in more depth, it's, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more. Hang on. I wonder what's going on here. Yeah, and um, we tend to think, I'm talking to you through the wonders of the ether and the internet and uh, digital information, and we tend to think, yeah, it all comes to us through <laughs> through the air, but it doesn't. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of kilometres of wire that's that's holding us all together. Yeah, that's correct, and they're all at risk. Uh, when you see the way they, I've been looking at that a lot further. That's a separate project. Uh, but, the, you know, we've got these cables that go out there. They come into little shacks and sheds on the coast, and then it's transferred inland. But for the most part, they lay on the seabed. And so, you know, there's there's access there to anybody to come in in, in diving, deep diving depths and be able to come in and uh, intercept them. Yes, let me go. Let me take you to the beginning because uh, there's lots of wonderful illustrations in your book. Chapter one, Frogman, the beginning, and it's just um, it looks like blokes in uh, hefty swimming trunks and a few tubes. I mean, it's it's very Heath Robinson, isn't it? At the beginning, really, really was. The Italians were the first people to get their design uh, of equipment, breathing equipment uh operational they developed uh, rubber suits so that people could have undergarments on and then a, a sealed rubber suit over the top flexible and fins to go on their feet uh, and they brought it about and, and they also invented this uh human torpedo with the detachable head so uh they started off and, and they they attacked uh gibraltar where Allied shipping was uh, being more, they're ready to take uh, supplies to uh, North Africa. And so <clears throat> they were able to, to get there and, and sneak in, go under a ship, unseen, unheard, and leave uh, a, a large warhead or even limpet mines on the sides of the ships uh, and then make good their escape and then blow up afterwards. And of course, we, we had nothing. We couldn't really counter that. What happened was, of course, everybody panicked and they said, we've got to set up a, a defence for this. So they had this working party uh, set up in Gibraltar of, of, for the British. Uh, and that consisted of uh, three people. 
uh, to look at anything up to 50 ships. Uh, and then there, they just had swimming trunks, weighted plimsolls, uh, and a, a, a submarine escape device to breathe from. And they operated 24 hours a day. And the three of them, are any of them, um, have, have their names gone down in history? Yeah, one was, uh, he become really well known. That was, uh, he, he was Commander Lionel Crabb. Uh, he was one. Uh, and there were uh, two others with him who uh, were still uh, heroes of the war, but are less well known. Yeah. Yes. So what makes him the hero of, of this? I think really it, it all comes down to just uh, going out uh, with, uh, they, they trained themselves. They had equipment that they didn't know how to maintain, but, so, but they did their best. They went out in a boat, uh, parked it alongside a, a tanker or a cargo ship, uh, and then put this gear on and jumped over the side and then searched the bottom of a boat. Uh, and he was the... Uh, he was the leader, if you want. He was the uh, the officer in charge, and he led his team. And this seems very, it seems very basic, very very low tech. Oh, it was. It, it was. It was simplicity itself. And but the thing was, it worked. And the thing was, as the team enlarged, it was effective, and it saved probably hundreds of ships from being damaged by underwater mines. So uh, when this is happening, when these successes came, what year are we talking? When abouts? Well, in the 1940s, 41, 42, and, until the Italians gave up on Gibraltar because the defences were so effective uh, and everything then moved to, to Italy because we were the, the war was moving into Italy at that time. Okay, it sounds like it's a very small number of men. How were these men selected? Where was the pool that was drawn on? Okay, uh, the uh, how, how they did it at that time, <clears throat> they would uh, put a notice out to anybody that was around in Gibraltar on a ship or, or base there and saying people wanted for hazardous uh, occupation you know for hazardous work and they'd see who come along and you'd go in there and in the case of crab he just interviewed people and uh, if he thought they were a nice chap uh then okay <laughs> yes you can come and have a go uh and then they just on the the dock there they just put people in this kit and they made them climb down a ladder go underwater breathe down there for a bit and then move about a bit uh, and then climb back out again and say, okay, you're in the team. And that was it. <laughs> At what point in history does it become just a little bit more high tech, a little bit more, I won't say professional because it sounds professional from the beginning, but when does it move on? Well, it goes through to the uh, end of the uh, the second world war uh, divers were used in greater numbers, so there'd been a lot of people trained. Uh, before the, they went into the beaches for the landings uh, in northern France to clear them and make sure they were safe to get the landing craft in to get troops ashore. Uh, and then once that was done, as they took over 
parts of France, they went into the uh, harbours and the ports and made sure they cleared it of mines so that shipping could then be brought in safely. So that was uh, the bulk of the people, because when the war ended, uh, like many special types of units, well, we don't need these people anymore. It's peace now. We, what do we want all these people for? So they were either put back out into as a civilians because they'd only joined up for the war, or if you were already in, you were uh, sort of sort of selected to whether you stayed. And they had a, a base corps, and from that we had uh, the Royal Navy took over the clearance diving, which is the mine warfare, and the Royal Marines took over the special boats uh, squadron, as it was then. So we had those two elements, uh, quite small in, in overall scheme of things, in uh, manpower numbers. And so that was the beginning of the change. And also then we had the uh, uh, Vietnam War, and in America that brought along the SEALs. You know, they were created and they're, you know, they're the biggest uh, combat diving organisation in the world. And so it, it started to evolve from that. Uh, so that was the period of, of change. And also in the UK, they had proper diving courses. So, you know, when you elected, oh, I'd like to become a, uh, a diver, uh, you know, you would go through a selection process. Uh, and if you passed it all the way through, then yes, you became one. And um, what about the technical facilities you were given? Was were these increasing? Were were you safer? Did you have more range, more durability? Uh, was that coming along? Yes, it all evolved uh, during the uh, uh, when Crab and and his people were out there operating. <laughs> they had to look at depth because they were breathing oxygen. Oxygen can't be used below ten meters. It it becomes very bad for the body. So. <clears throat> their limit of range was 10 metres. Uh, the compressed air, as we know, scuba, like all the people that go on their scuba holidays, that wasn't around at this time. That was something that came after the war. And so, <clears throat> the, you know, you had this, all this equipment and then they had to do tables. How long could you stay down at the given depth? And if you went with a, with a mixture of gas, could you stay down longer? So they had all this experimental work going on and that continued uh, and then continues to this day. Chapter seven in your book, uh, the title is Female Military Divers. When did women come in? The Americans, uh, in the, what I found is the, the Americans uh, were the first ones to have, it, have them in, in any numbers, but they weren't very many. Uh, we're talking... Uh, probably single figures of women that were accepted into diving. Interesting, when I talked to the Philippines uh, uh, Special Forces, and I said, you know, do you have uh, females uh, in your organisation? It was, a, well, yes, of course we do. <clears throat> you know, out there, you know, there's a course. If you pass it, you're in. So there's a different sort of philosophy, I think, that uh, we in the West don't tend to put women forward they do now uh quite rightly but they have you know because they have the choice but then it was a you know well that's a, a male job doing that it's a bit dangerous so that that was in 
uh, and it's, it's it's evolving, and there are now more and more females going into the diving branches in in different countries around the world. Now, you said that the Italians were leaders at the beginning. Then we caught up. Um, who's in the lead now? I was surprised to see in, in your book to read that North Korea is doing it and is a player. Which are the leading countries now? Probably the leading countries uh, are uh, the U United States with their uh, SEALs and their army combat divers uh, in number scales. The Russians have always been in there with very large numbers. Um, and then uh, I suppose you've got Canada. Australia has got a, a powerful body of combat divers within its military. And so there's other countries. And other countries come in. I mean, even Singapore, a tiny place in, uh, in the overall scheme of things, you know, they've got a very effective combat diver unit. So when I watch so the night, yes. So when I watch the nightly news, I'm appalled. When you watch the nightly news through your particular prism, are you comforted by what you know of combat diving? I'd rather we weren't. Uh, we didn't have all these wars going on, and I think most people would agree with that. Uh, but unfortunately, there are people out there who don't have the same sort of view, and you know they want to cause problems and aggravation uh, and that can be from from russia with its activities uh right through to uh uh you know uh terrorist organizations uh who uh want to operate uh and and use divers and they have i know there's a bit in there about the palestinians uh and their people um, so it it's a, it's a little bit the, the the one thing also out of it you don't learn very much on the on the news about what combat divers do because they're very guarded on what they do and how they do it uh and so it's it, it yeah it is it's a secretive organization because that's how they have their advantage unseen unheard when you watch the news, lots of work is being, lots of destruction and uh, protection is done via drones now, presumably underwater. You can't have these autonomous vehicles, can you? Oh, yes. That's the new, that's the new in. <coughs> Excuse me. That's the new in. Uh, they're very much going in that. Uh, it's been in for a while now, particularly in mine warfare. Uh, because if you have a diver, you put them in the water and they're searching. It takes a lot of effort to search a, a large area uh, for an individual or even more than one. But a drone can move around very, very quickly. And so that's the that's the new way of going with things. And so there's there's all sorts of innovation goes on, you know, using uh, the, the divers. They're not autonomous, but they have their own vehicles, underwater vehicles now, mini subs and uh, swimmer delivery vehicles. So it's becoming very, very mechanised to assist the diver where possible. Now, you say you've written this book, Combat Divers. You were one. When you look back on your time, do you get nostalgic about it? Or do you think, oh, thank goodness I don't do that anymore? 
Uh, it was completely different, uh, completely different. Um, for example, when I watch um, the the TV program SAS, Who Dares Wins, you know, they, they, yes. they have a, a bunch of people come in there and uh, instructors put them through their paces. And I look at that and think, oh, my God, there's no way I would be doing that. It's changed. Everything has changed. And I suppose when you're younger, it's, you view everything differently anyway and so it, it, you know th there is a need and i quite favored uh, doing that job and yeah i did um and it seems for those of us who barely sort of do a length of crawl it seems like a very odd thing to want to do but you give the impression that there is a vast queue of people lining up to become combat divers yeah, they never they're never short of uh, of divers. That's one uh, of the interesting facts. Is always uh, they have regular courses running through, and people go, and it's the same, I suppose, with special forces selection. You know, they always start off with about three hundred people, and they end up with four or five at the end. So it's a uh, yeah, people want to do it, uh, and you know it's. It's getting through that uh, that that's the key element for people. The great thing you've done in your book is I never thought that I'd be interested in combat divers and their exploits. A few pages in, and I was hooked. It's a great book, Michael. I hope you're proud of it. I am. I'm absolutely thrilled with it. The publishers have been absolutely fantastic, uh, and all credit to them in producing a superb article or item it is combat divers an illustrated history of special forces divers by michael g wellham good to meet you mike thank you and you thanks very much indeed david mm -hmm.